Good to see you all today. My name is Garrett. I serve as the director of local missions here at Nova. Uh, our passage today, it's going to be 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. So you can go ahead and start flipping there now. It's towards the back of your Bible, so if you have trouble finding it, go to the back and then, you know, start flipping backwards. You'll find it soon. We are in the middle of a sermon series in which we're going through, obviously, the New Testament book of 1 John. It's a very interesting little book. I say little because it's rather short, but obviously a lot of great content. Interesting in that I think it can be very easy to misinterpret or misunderstand this book, and we're going to see a little bit of that today. But ultimately, it's a very, very rich book, and we're definitely going to see that today as well. So let's just jump right into it. I'm going to read uh, 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 10 for us. Please follow along. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning, because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister This is God's word for us today. All right. So before we jump too deep into our passage, let's just take a brief moment for some quick observations. Namely, I want to mention, um, like I said, that 1 John has the potential to be easily misinterpreted if we are not careful. Verses 5 through 10 there. Anyone get a little confused or maybe even a little anxious after hearing this section of our passage? You know, stuff like, no one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. You know, no one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child. All right. Quick show of hands. How many of you have done something sinful this past week? 
Very good. If your hand's not up, we need to have a talk. Um, (laughs) Now, upon a cursory reading, it kind of looks like John is saying that once you are saved, you just stop sinning, right? And therefore, vice versa is also true. But we all obviously commit sinful acts, kind of a fair amount, even after we become followers of Jesus. So this this can kind of be confusing. And like I said, maybe for some of us, it produces these anxious feelings. And you start thinking, oh no, this must mean I am not actually a child of God. We're going to jump into this a bit more thoroughly later, but right off the top, I want to assuage any anxious feelings or confusion. This is not what John is getting at, like at all. Like I said, we're going to jump into this a little more thoroughly a bit later. But for now, I want to begin, naturally, at the beginning of our passage. When was the last time that you pondered the magnitude of God's love for us? For you. Like actually took a concerted chunk of time, even just five minutes, and truly just pondered, meditated on God's love. What do you think would change in your life if you did so regularly? Maybe some of you already do that, and that's fantastic. What do you think would change in your life if you meditated on God's love regularly? Maybe you would stop being so incessantly hard on yourself. Maybe you wouldn't be so hard on others. Be a little quicker to forgive and show compassion. Maybe that constant sense of worry would ease up a bit. Maybe, maybe that sense of joy that's maybe been missing from your life would start coming back a little bit. You see, at the beginning of our passage today, John reminds us of the magnitude of God's love. Verse 1, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. Now, the Greek word here for uh, great when it's referring to God's love, it's the Greek word podopos, and it can more accurately be translated as otherworldly or of another nature. And therefore, we can read verse 1 as, see what otherworldly love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. It's a love that is so great, so incomprehensible that it seemingly doesn't even exist in our world. Obviously it does because God dwells with us, but you get the point. And notice that John says that God lavishes this otherworldly love on us. He doesn't hold back in any way. He lavishes it on us so much so that he calls us his children. Now, I'm not a parent, but what I hear consistently from parents is that the love for your children, it's this different kind of love that you didn't feel before having children. 
Now amplify that love to an otherworldly amount and then some. And that's the type of love that John tells us that God lavishes on us. Look, we're, I know we're not much of a call and response church, but can I get an amen on this? So why do we limit God's love? We obviously don't actually limit his love. That's not in our power. But how we behave, think, act, we limit our perception of his love in our lives. If God lavishes this otherworldly love on us, why do some of us incessantly beat ourselves up all the time? Yours truly included on that one, by the way. You see, God's love, it's, it's so great. It's of another nature, most clearly exemplified in the fact that God died for us. He gave his life for us. Any past, present, or future sin is washed clean. Psalm 103 verse 12 says, so far as the east is from the west, that's how far he has removed our transgression from us. That's an infinite amount. And yet, some of us, when we slip up, we have this tendency to be so incredibly harsh on ourselves. We almost condemn ourselves. Now, conviction's a good thing. Conviction's a good thing. Recognizing where you were wrong, being repentant, making changes in your life, that is a good thing. But continual self-flagellation, self-condemnation, the refusal to forgive yourself as you have already been forgiven, that does not come from God. No, no, no. That comes from Satan. Satan, the word the Satan in Greek, by the way, it means deceiver. He's deceiving you. He's taking your sin and condemning you for it, whereas God's love is such that he removes our sin. He washes us clean. Don't listen to that lie of condemnation because that is what it is. It's a lie. God's love is so much greater than we can ever comprehend. And then there are some of us that have difficulty in forgiving other people. Maybe one person in particular. But if this is how God's love, or how God shows us his love, that he doesn't hold any of our wrongdoing against us, no matter how severe, by the way, then why would we do so to others? It's an otherworldly love. What would happen if you meditated on God's love regularly? And friends, my encouragement for you this week is to literally just take five minutes each day to sit in silence and do nothing but meditate, ponder on God's great love. Like, actually do that. Each, each day this week, take five minutes and do that. I think a lot changes when we do so. So, uh, this passage of Scripture opens up by John reminding his readers of God's incomprehensible love for us. And now... Let's jump forward a bit, and we're going to jump into verses 4 
through 10. Remember, this is the section that I mentioned earlier that could potentially be a little bit confusing or produce some anxious feelings within us if we just read it from a surface level. Okay. Um, Have you all ever had something that you have said taken out of context? Not a fun feeling. You know, you feel misrepresented. And it often leads to bigger problems down the road. Sometimes having something taken out of context can be lighthearted and maybe even funny. Um, So I worked at uh, Forest Home uh, Christian Camps one summer back in 2014, I believe. Um, And this is my name tag from that time. I know you can't read it, uh, but it does not say Garrett. It says Impact. Um, That was my name tag. That was my name for that summer. Um, So for those of us who worked with the younger kids, the elementary age children at Forest Home, uh, which is what I did, um, we were given camp names. It was just a fun little tradition that they did. And you did not get to pick your own camp name. The The way it would work is very early in the summer, you know, before kids start coming, uh, you and your staff sit down in a meeting together um, with the sole purpose of coming up with your camp names. And the way you would do that is you would go one by one through the circle, and each person would take a turn being in the hot seat, where people would, the other members of your staff would just ask you questions about your life. What do you like? Uh, What's your favorite food? What's your favorite animal? Tell us something interesting about you. And then from something in there, they would derive a camp name from you. Like, uh, for example, if somebody had a particular story where they encountered a bear when they were young, they may get the name Grizzly, something like that. So, my name is Impact, or it was. Um, It came to my turn, and... Uh, I was answering a bunch of questions, and then somebody asks me, you know, tell us something unique about yourself that a lot of other people, it doesn't apply to a lot of other people. I'm thinking, I'm thinking, I was like, well, okay, well, the first thing that comes to mind, and this is 100% true, is I have had a lot of concussions throughout my life. (laughs) I have been hit in the head many, many times, and then out of nowhere, somebody's just like, oh, I got it. His name could be Impact. And the rest of the group was like, great, he's Impact, moving on. My name was literally Impact because I've been hit in the head a lot. (laughs) So, um, now you know the context of how I got that name. However, when other uh, church groups would come up or other people at Forest Home, uh, when they would see my name tag and it says Impact, they're like, oh, oh, your name's Impact, okay. Well, that must mean you must make a really big impact on the children who come up each week. That, that must be how you got your name. Or it's something, I heard this one as well. It was like, oh, impact. Um, you must have been really into extreme sports or something like that. You know, impact. You know, they didn't have the context for it. And then I would have to explain, nah. <laughs> I've just been hitting the head a lot. <laughs> Oh, boy. Sometimes having something taken out of context, it's silly or humorous. But let's be honest. 
Most of the time, taking something out of context, it just leads to trouble. And it's the same thing with Scripture. Uh, To be frank with y'all, the Bible has been taken out of context many times throughout history to very, very detrimental effects at times. And this is why it's important to know Scripture, by the way. And I'm not really talking about memorizing verses, even though nothing wrong with that. Um, Rather, I'm talking about knowing the overarching narrative of the Bible. What's the bigger picture? What are the key themes throughout Scripture? And when we know the greater biblical narrative and its key themes, it becomes easier to discern when something might be being taken out of context. And so passages like 1 John 3, 4 through 10, when read out of its greater context, it can be a little Stranger, confusing. And once again, read on its own, it sounds like John is saying that when, if we sin, then that means you're not actually a child of God. And once again, that's not what he's getting at. What we have to do is see this passage within its greater context. And so let's take a second to do so. First, uh, we're going to look back earlier in 1 John. We're going to look at chapter Uh, 1, verses 8 through 10. I'm going to read that for us, 1 John 1, 8 through 10. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. So literally just a few paragraphs earlier in this letter, John is saying that if we claim to be without sin, past, present, or future, then we deceive ourselves. Now with that passage in mind, we have two options when looking at our passage today. Either John has this schizophrenic theology where he simultaneously claims that you can't be without sin, but if you do sin, you're not a child of God, or he's saying something else entirely. So in the past weeks, both Adam and Dean uh, have given uh, us the greater historical context of John's letter. Remember that while this book is a part of Scripture and it's for all people at all times, it was also originally written as a letter to a particular group of people at a particular point in time. In short, John was writing to a group of Christians who were undergoing a crisis of sorts in their local church. Um, There was a group of people who split off from the church And they did so because they claimed to be Christians, but they also claimed to have this extra spiritual knowledge. And they lived incredibly immoral lives. Uh, These were a group of people uh, that we call Gnostics. Not agnostics, those are different things, but Gnostics. And part of what they believed was that everything spiritual was good, and it mattered a whole lot. Whereas everything physical, the physical world, it didn't, it didn't matter. They saw a big separation between the two. And so they believed that since they believed in God, you know, like the heady aspect of faith, knowledge stuff, that they were covered. 
all is good. But since physical things don't actually matter, that meant that they could kind of do whatever they wanted in this physical world, and therefore they lived incredibly immoral lives. And this was causing a problem because at this point in time, the church was really, really young. They didn't have two millennia of doctrine and teaching to point to like we do today. So the faithful in the church at this point in time were probably a bit confused. Are we correct in what we think? Does this other church who thinks differently actually have it correct? And this is the context into which John is writing. There's the faithful in the church, and then there's these Gnostics who claim to be followers of God but live very immoral, sinful lives. Now, with this context in the back of our minds, I'm going to reread verses 4 through 10 for us. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning, because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. See, John is not getting at some sort of Christian perfectionism. You know, once you become a Christian, you're just going to stop sinning all of a sudden. Rather, he is trying to encourage the church. What he is getting at is you cannot have this bifurcated life in which you claim to be a follower of Jesus, but then just go ahead and do whatever you want, not actually following him in your behaviors, actions, and attitudes. You see, when we choose to follow God, to lean into that otherworldly love that I was talking about, there's a change that takes place. We live our lives attuned to God and his ways. Instead of living for ourselves, we live in service of others. Instead of holding grudges, we offer forgiveness because that is what he gave us. Instead of living like we are the gods of our lives, we recognize that there is one true God and we follow his ways. Not simply because they are some arbitrary rules from this deistic autocrat, autocrat, but because God embodies goodness itself and therefore when we follow him, we live into goodness. You cannot claim to be a follower of Jesus and not actually follow Jesus. And once again, we're not talking about perfection here. Life does not work that way. When we choose to follow Jesus, yes, there is a change in our lives, but then there is also a lifetime of growth. We are continually learning and growing in our faith in God. 
Like, let's put it this way. Um, let's imagine a young kid who starts playing baseball. They want to start playing baseball, and so they ask their parents to sign them up for Little League. He goes to all the practices, plays in all the games, he plays catch with his friends and his parents, and he begins to proudly declare to everyone in his surroundings, I am a baseball player, and rightly so. Now, just by claiming that he is a baseball player, that doesn't all of a sudden make him Babe Ruth. That would be ridiculous. That takes a lifetime of growth to even come close to that. But he absolutely has every right to claim to be a baseball player because that is what he is. He may be very new at it, but he is practicing, playing the games, and growing. He is a baseball player. Now contrast that with a different kid. This different kid also claims to be a baseball player and proclaims it to every person in their life. However, he never asked his parents to sign him up for Little League. He never practices. He doesn't play in any games. He never even plays catch with his friends or parents. And this kid can claim to be a baseball player all he wants, but the fact of the matter is it's not true. It's just not how it works. By claiming an identity, you are also claiming that you live your lives towards that identity. Like another example is if I, Garrett, just all of the start, all of a sudden started proclaiming, I'm an astronaut now. Y'all would think I'm starting to lose it. It wouldn't match up. My life in no way is lived out to where I can claim to be an astronaut. And this is what John is getting at. He's writing to the faithful in the church, encouraging them that no, those other guys that have split off from you, they are way off. You can't claim to be a follower of Jesus without actually following his ways. It's not how it works. He's also claiming that, he's also not claiming that Christians need to be perfect, not in any way. If that were the case, the population of the church would be a whopping zero. But the life of a Christian is marked by intentionally following in the ways of Jesus. You cannot bifurcate your faith in your daily lives. And so I think this message from John can either be comforting or convicting for us today, just as it was back then. It kind of just depends on us. Are you following Jesus? And I'm not really talking about, you know, the cerebral aspect of your faith, but I'm more getting at, like, your actions, your ethics, your words, your attitudes. John has some pretty strong words for those who claim to be one thing but live a completely different life. Once again, we're not talking about perfection. Not anything really close to that. But what direction is your life facing? Is it towards God? Or not so much? With this, I want to make a quick note. Um... I think there's a fair contingency of us here at Nova who have the or propensity to overanalyze our lives. Like, did I do good? Did I do bad? And when we slip up, man, we stress about it a lot. I know this because I've talked with many of you. 
And if you are in this camp that I'm talking about, I think this passage is actually incredibly encouraging for you. I know for those of you who I just referred to, this passage has all the potential to make you second-guess yourself. Am I doing good enough? Is my life really for God? What if it's not enough? John wrote this letter to encourage Christians just like you. And quite simply, it's not about what you do or do not do. It's about what God did and continues to do in you. So my encouragement for you is let go a little bit. And by the way, if you are constantly stressing about what you do or do not do, like in terms of ethics, that's probably a good sign that you're not who John is talking about. John was reprimanding those who don't care at all about what they do or do not do, not those who care a whole lot. Maybe for those who care a whole lot, maybe even a little too much at times, that's possible. The encouragement is just to relax a little bit. Loosen that tight, tight grip on your lives and let go, leaning into God's great love. And now here's the final encouragement for all of us here today. And for that, we're going to return to that first verse in our passage. Wherever you fall on that spectrum, even if you have lived a life full of sin and debauchery, if you have lived only for yourself, if you haven't really cared much about following God, God's love is such, so otherworldly great, that His forgiveness and compassion for you will never run dry no matter what. Like, you can think to yourself, oh, but I've done this, or, but you don't really know how screwed up I am. I'm telling you right now, you can always turn to him, literally, no matter where you have been in life. His love is greater than you can comprehend. And turning to him, living the way that he created us to follow, it's just so great. These are not arbitrary rules, but it's life lived to the fullest. And it starts and finishes with that otherworldly love that we are eternally shown from God. Amen.